Hello and welcome to the Toast Podcast with me, Laura Barton. For this series, I'm meeting six different women, artists, musicians, writers, all of whom are taking me to a place that they hold special and which inspires their creativity. Little Sparta in the Pentland Hills was the home of Scottish poet, writer and artist Ian Hamilton Finlay. Collaborating with stone carvers and sculptors, Finlay created this internationally acclaimed garden set in seven acres of moorland. I've been invited here by Maggie O'Farrell, the author of seven novels and winner of both the Somerset Maugham and Costa Novel Awards. Maggie visits Little Sparta often to find inspiration for her writing. I know he moved in here in the 60s, I think, and it was a sheep farm then. So it was all just the stone cottage surrounded by, you know, the usual fields, the arable land and animals grazing. And so he is carved out of the very inhospitable land of the Scottish borders, this incredible garden, which is filled with poetry and sculpture and water. So he's made something which wasn't there before. He's carved it out of this environment. So it's astonishing. How much did you know about him before you came here? A little bit. I mean, I knew him mostly as a concrete poet. And I didn't really realise that he'd done all this. And I didn't realise that he had suffered really severely from agoraphobia. And so in a way, this is... It's called Little Sparta, after the Greek city, which was a military base. But I think, in a way, it was his fortress. I think it was... He created it as a place that he could retreat to and feel secure within... Is that something you connect to a little bit? Or? Not really. I don't really suffer. I have the opposite of agoraphobia. I think I'm always desperate to get out. <laughs> no, I don't have that. I mean, I think what fascinates me about it is it seems to me a very clear physical symbol of what creativity is, which is making something appear which wasn't there before. You know, I think whatever discipline you work in, whether it's pottery or novels or poetry or sculpture or gardening or knitting, whatever it is, textiles, it is that urge at this very kind of basic level to have something in front of you which wasn't there before to create it. I'm sure Toast listeners will be familiar with concrete poetry, but for those who aren't, could you just explain it for them? Well, concrete poetry is... uh, they, They were written by people who were interested in playing with the form and the layout of a poem. There are the actual literal sense of the words, but also the way they laid them on a page in the kind of white spaces around it, either sort of altered or added to the meaning of what was being said. So it's sort of, it's a kind of halfway point between poetry and sculpture in a way. Sweet old description. Uh, so tell us about what we can actually see right now. Right now we're in the garden. I think it's called, I think it's called the kitchen garden and it's near the old house which we can look at just through the trees and this is the most sort of organized of the garden it's the most cultivated in a sense there's lots of little box hedges and trees and tiny little paths and if you look around you there will be kind of poems and words and sculptures hidden in the trees and so what I really love about in Hamilton Finley I think I think I'm right in saying he's the only one of the concrete poets who actually took concrete poetry literally I mean he doesn't actually put it in concrete he, he sandblasts it into stone or onto glass but in a way, I kind of like the idea that he has basically made concrete poetry concrete beneath you. We are standing right now as we speak on several of his uh, yes. sculptures or poems. But I think it's, I mean, it's actually hard to describe what they are. I was trying to explain it to my children, which I think is always a good way, because my children flick through the book and they said, is it a graveyard? <laughs> and I said, no, no, these are poetry. These are, it's a poem, oh, it's a sculpture, but it's sort of both and it's neither and it's somewhere in between. But that's what fascinates me about it, that it is indefinable in a sense. Do you have a favourite of the ones around the garden? 
Actually, there are different areas of the garden, so you move through them and everyone is completely different. I do really like the windpipes. They're right down at sort of ankle level. They look a bit like panpipes, but they're made of concrete, obviously, and the wind blows through them and plays. So it's a bit like a sort of modern uh, Aeolian harp. <laughs> and there's a lot of, uh, you know, the garden is full of references to war, I mean, in the, of course, the name of it, and the Second World War and other wars. I think this, this there's, our feet is a sculpture of a shell, and it's a schiff, which is German for ship. And I think there are lots of sculptures about the different ships that went down during the Second World War, and there's a stone pyramid behind us. And there are two um, classical-looking gentlemen either side of the path, really eyeballing each other. You live in Edinburgh now. Yeah. And you lived in London before. Yeah. How did that affect your creativity? I don't know. I mean, for years we kind of I went back and forth a bit between Edinburgh and London. And I've lived in other places. I lived in Italy, and I lived in Hong Kong, and lived all over the world. Um, And I do really love. To travel, I still do. I still um, get really restless if I stay at home for more than about a month. <laughs> but it's funny. I think I think I when I was living in London, I tended to write about Edinburgh, and then now I'm living in Edinburgh. <laughs> I mean, I have written a lot, but I tend to write about other places. You know, the sort of fictional idea of a place when you're not actually there. I think if reality keeps impinging upon you, it's much harder. I think it's much easier to look at somewhere further away, in a sense, to be able to make that leap and make stuff up about it. And coming stepping out of your normal life to come to something like this does that give you a bit of distance from the world in general yeah i think so i mean i think i don't know inspiration i think is a really tricky thing it's really hard to pin down and i think i don't know if you find this laura but as a novelist one of the most common questions you get is where do you get your ideas from because everybody wants to know that and everybody wants to know but actually there isn't any answer you have no idea where they come from and you can't really pursue them they're just going to arrive aren't they I always think that question is a bit like looking at the sun. You should never do it. You've just got to know that it's there and trust <laughs> and trust that it's up there somehow shining down on you. Do you have little routines that help it come to you at all or not? I do find music quite useful. I don't listen to it while I'm writing, but I listen to it when I'm getting ready to. And I tend to kind of put on one track, which will go on over and over again. And I think if you're writing historically, sometimes music is from that period you're writing about. It's really useful. And I think that's really... But I think it has to be really familiar. That's why I listen to it over and over again, because I almost don't hear it after a while. Could um, you give us some examples of songs that have helped what you? What did I listen to? When I was writing my last novel, which was called This Must Be The Place, it was a lot about travelling and sort of global, moving around. There were lots of voices in different places and times. I used to listen a lot to Iggy Pop's Passenger. Love that song. <laughs> and even now when I hear that guitar riff, I suddenly am back there in the space of the novel. So what's over here? Um, I think this is the English Parkland, or what they call the English Parkland in Scotland. (laughs) And this is a really different feel to the garden that we're leaving right now, which has got tiny paths and is very cultivated. But the English Parkland is, as you'd expect, it's big and it's open, and there are these really interesting pathways through the grass where they've allowed the sort of edges or borders of grass to grow up. I should probably point out that we just went down a path towards the Parkland, but then... (laughs) abruptly ended and led us back on it so it sort of confuses you and uh, discombobulates you so you just got to press on i think we might go this way what about should we try this way a lot of the, the inscriptions or the the poems seem to suggest where your eyes should go don't they yeah. or I think that's right. So these actually are written in concrete, which I really, <laughs> I really love. Actually, I really love this one. This is just three words. It says swallows, little matelots, which is such 
a beautiful image because it makes you want to look up and look up for swallows and just think they're the little tiny sailors. This one says brown barns slower than old beige barges. We've gone through the gates, there's another bridge which is sort of a, a reddish painted bridge and gravel which is underfoot keeps changing doesn't it? There's the bricks and the stone yeah, and there's so gravel. No, where are we at now? I think we're out into the wild garden which again is full of lots of classical references and there are lots of poems in and under the tree so there's a fir tree here which has the German words for Tannenbaum or Tannenbaum in concrete underneath it um, and this one I'm not sure what that one's called you can hear overhead those are the Canada geese migrating so they leave Scotland at this point and <laughs> making a really long yeah they're making a lot of noise and they're all up there in the big V they go overhead at this time of year all the time it sounds like a, someone cranking <laughs> yeah, a very, very squeaky wheel, exactly. <laughs> which way so if we go over this bridge, yeah. um, we head towards Lochan, which he created for So it's quite strange because we've just come out of the woodland area and it's suddenly opened out. It feels almost as if you're in a different country. Mm. It has this sort of subtle way of disorientating you doesn't it yeah that's what he does i think or that's what he does in his writing and in his sculpture and in his garden he will constantly pull the rug out from under your feet and you might expect to go one way but actually you just come down into a little cul-de-sac and then suddenly you come out from this very cultivated garden into this very wild place which is full of bracken and reeds and irises and yeah and so we've come out into the wild garden and we're in front of Lochan Eck, which he created for his children he flooded it and uh, his son was called Alexander or Eck was his nickname and he had two kids a son and a daughter and they had boats here and used to sail around in it which is I know not a bad thing to do as a dad and it does look suddenly very Scottish at this moment yes. whereas it, not that it doesn't look Scottish inside the woods but yeah, it felt yeah. more cottagey well we've got, we're looking out onto the, the hills now onto the Pentlands it looks it still looks quite dry and yellow actually because it's been a very hot summer but right up in the distance you can see a very very brown peak so it does, yeah. We're in proper Scotland now. <laughs> but then if you look to the left, suddenly there's two sort of gateposts, which are red brick. Yeah, there are a lot, I think there's lots of classical references in this garden as to others. So there's a kind of truncated column here to Dido. He's made it look like a sort of classical ruin. You were saying just as we went through the garden that you've, you weren't a great fan of gardening before. No, not personally. I mean, I used to think, well, when I lived in London, we had a tiny, tiny patch of garden. And I always sort of thought of gardening as a bit like outdoor housework, just endlessly on and on. You never actually got anywhere. It was ever receding horizon of order. But the, in Scotland, I have a bigger garden, actually. And I have got more into it. Not to the level of in Hampton Finlay as yet. Oh, <laughs> you never know. What was the first step to you falling in love with gardening? I think it's partly having children, actually, and growing food was something and I realised especially when children get to about the age of four or five they will remember rituals that you did the year before and there's something really beautiful about reminding them of it. The cyclical idea of nature and life I think is very comforting to children it's a very comforting environment to grow up in. There's also something rather lovely with children uh, children's eye level I think in gardens isn't it because yeah. they are almost face on to the height of a plant. Well I've always found I mean I've got three kids and I've always it's always been very obvious to me there isn't much that can't be solved by just going outside 
that can sort out most stuff in life, I think, even for an adult. I was going to say, does that work for you? If you're stuck <laughs> It does, rising. it does. I think there's an amazing... I think it's, it's very easy to forget that coming outside and letting your eyes stretch out and being surrounded by something green does you a huge amount of good. Tell me about where you grew up, how green was that? Well, I grew up most a lot by the sea. I was born by the sea in Northern Ireland and then we moved later to South Wales and then to Scotland, not far from here, um, East Lothian by the sea. So I've always been very wedded to the sea, actually. But it has, yeah, so I did have quite a reasonably rural upbringing. But as an adult, I really decided, actually, I was a much more urban creature. (laughs) I moved to Hong Kong and then, you know, then to London. So the biggest, sort of noisiest cities in the world, which I love. And I do find the urban environment really fascinating, really stimulating. But I think there is a side to me which really craves, you know, obviously it isn't silence because if you listen around us, we can hear the, you know, the rustle of those beech leaves and we can hear there's a bird up there how familiar then to you when you moved here more recently how familiar was the the shades of green in this part of the world and the ratio of sky to land it's very different i think the light in edinburgh is i'm not sure why but it's very special i don't know if it's the cloud or it's the sunlight or the way the light reflects off the stone but it is very it's very special it's very very white very pale which suits us mostly because <laughs> we're all pretty pale as well. <laughs> I loved London in my 20s and I thought I'd stay there forever but when I had kids I just found it wasn't quite working for me in a way and I suddenly craved northern skies and a bit more space. So how often would you head here? I do try and come once a year in the summer but it sort of lives on in my mind actually. I have quite a lot of postcards of it up beside my desk where I work. So I, I come back mentally quite a lot, physically not as much as I'd like to. <laughs> Which of the postcards you have, what do they show? I have one of the, there's a place where the stream, the burn comes into the garden and he has written something above it. There's a little, he's written this, he's made this kind of little sort of very, uh, he's made this kind of temple bridge to come over it, so it's sort of honouring the stream coming onto his property. Should I have that one. find it? Yes, it's somewhere around here. Yeah, that's what's on top of these uh, brick gateways, tiny hand grenades. So So he's he's honouring the arrival of this burn, this tiny stream, onto his property with this quote from Virgil and also this uh, huge concrete block into which are chiselled these letters in Latin. Here are cool springs, here soft meadows. I think what I find so particularly moving about this and very beautiful about this is that I think it's what all artists in a sense do. We all work with what arrives on our property in a sense. And he's taken this tiny, tiny, tiny little spurn, which is about, I mean, at this point, it's the circumference of what, a 50 pence piece. And this is what he's made from it from behind us, these huge lockens, these, you know, he's using this as a kind of font and he's, um, I don't know, I suppose he's taken with it and run. He's run with it, hasn't he? <laughs> he's made these incredible lock-ins, he's made this beautiful garden, he's made all these references to wars and classical uh, mythology and, you know, it's just, it's amazing that from this tiny, tiny spring can come all this. Oh, look! There's Aha. the golden head. This is the golden head. So this golden head is on your desk, well, not the actual Yeah, not the actual the one. Picture. It would be a bit big for my desk. What I like about it is it's the only thing in the garden that's very, very bright. And it gives you the idea, I think, that the there is a huge statue underneath the ground to uncover, which again makes me think about the process of creating and creativity, that maybe 
at the beginning there's only a tiny bit of it that you can see and it's all about excavation you've got to find what's under there you don't quite know what's under there but you know there's something but you don't know what it is that you'll find so whenever I see it I always want to dig down and find the rest of this very beautiful golden statue but um, we never will because it's hidden only in Hamilton Finley knows what's down there you've started writing a novel yes. again after doing non-fiction mm. that must be a very different process and use different parts of your brain yeah it's a huge relief actually to go back to fiction uh, having written non-fiction memoir which is what I did I found the truth is really hard it's much much harder to stick to actual true events yeah much I find it much easier to make stuff up <laughs> much more enjoyable actually I guess you know where the uh the golden limbs of your own <laughs> mind are, don't you? Perhaps. Well, I think it always surprises you. I think with every novel, there's always stuff that surprises you. And I think that's a good sign, actually, that you find something unexpected. Because I think it's a sign that the book is working. If it acquires a mind of its own, a life of its own, it's always a good point to reach that when it surprises you. The oddness of this garden, because it is odd, mm. not only in its different use of the space and the natural landscape, but you, there are references to classical civilization. there are references to war, there are hand grenades on, on gateposts. What does that do to your mind? Well, it is, it is a very odd place, but I think its, incong- it's, it's, it's no incongruities are the... Uh, is its huge strength, actually, because it is, it's completely what you completely wouldn't expect at the top of a kind of trek through a sheep farm is to find this place. And... You know, I think some people, I've heard some people say that they find it off-putting that they can't understand all the ancient Greek and the Latin, which I don't either, but that doesn't bother me. It doesn't matter. I think what's so brilliant about it is it's so unexpected, and every time you turn a corner and every time you come out of one little tiny wooded area, there's something totally unexpected that you find, and I think that's what's brilliant about it. I think right back to, you know, Chaucer or John Donne, they were, especially the kind of metaphor, it reminds me a little bit of metaphysical poets who were yoking together these very, very abstract and oppositional sometimes ideas and I I think that's brilliant to me it's the kind of metaphor made flesh in a way (laughs) and it's nice that there are no explanations you mentioned before there are no plaques anywhere there's no one explaining the references I think that's what's brilliant about him he's just letting you get from it what you will get from it he's not telling you what to think he's putting these things out here and they're very strange and you know very abstruse very erudite in a way but I think you're getting it from what you are to get it. I mean you can actually see my daughter who's running around she's having the best time of her life you know I don't think she's ever come across any ancient, <laughs> ancient Latin in her life but you know she's really overexcited and I think that is the effect it will have on some people it excites me I mean I'm not running around jumping in the lochan but uh... <laughs> maybe internally <laughs> maybe internally I am yeah it is the the vision of a of a contrary man, isn't it? And it is it's very personal vision. Who do you think it was for? For him alone, for other people to come and see, for people who who might get all the references. I suspect he made it just for himself, <laughs> and I think uh, that's why it's so extraordinary and such a work of brilliance. Because I think all the best, I think anyway, the best kinds of art are always the one that the artist makes for him or herself. I think you have to make the work that you need to make. You have to tell the story that you need to tell without any kind of thought for other people because you can't not do it. That's always going to be the best work. And I think that's what this garden is relevant in. I think he couldn't not do it. He had to do it. He had a compulsion to create this place and to create the works and to create the words and the sculpture. And that's why it sings like it does. We can hear the farm machinery (laughs) and there have been little uh, tufts of wool and things. Well, not wool, of sheep <laughs> around how important do you think it is that it is in this sort of slightly isolated location you have to park a fair distance down the track yeah. and walk through a, a field of, of cows to get here what does that bring to it 
Well, to me, it feels like a metaphor for the creative process. It's not easy, is it? <laughs> it's really hard. It's not always open. It's only open a few days a year. I think it sort of feels like inspiration. You know, I always think that creating something is part inspiration, but it's a lot of it is part really hard work and you can't give up and you've got to have a lot of tenacity. You've got to be very tenacious to get here. I mean, you have to walk a quarter of a mile up a very stony track and you've got to call ahead and make sure you're, <laughs> you're allowed to come in. But once you're here, oh, it's paradise. Is that, is that a boat or an aeroplane? Oh, it's an aeroplane. It's an aeroplane. Should we see if the signpost is there? Do not be fighting. Uh We are what feels what feels like the first day of winter almost today, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah. And Little Spot is actually closed today. Yeah. It's open just for us. But what's it like in high summer here? Well, actually, the the few times I've been, I've probably been here three or four times, and every time I've been, it's been incredibly warm, really unseasonably <laughs> warm. And it's beautiful. You get this real sense of this garden, which is still alive. You know, in Hamilton Finley died in 2006. But there's this incredible sense that this garden not only lives on, but is still changing and growing and ameliorating, and the trees are still getting higher and the bushes are getting <laughs> overgrown. So, I mean, it's beautifully kept. But there is something incredible about this place that he created, and he's dead, but it's still still there, it's still changing, and still changing us as well. You've been listening to the Toast podcast with me, Laura Barton. The producer is Jeff Bird, and the series was conceived by Emily Mears. You can subscribe to Toast Podcasts on our website or with your preferred podcast provider to hear more episodes from this series.